All right, now, Jeremiah chapter 15, that's gonna be our text this morning. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah. If you're visiting for the first time, we take books of the Bible. We start at the beginning, we end at the end, and we talk about them all the way through. And so, verse by verse through Jeremiah takes us to chapter 15, verse 10 through 21. The topic we're gonna find there is this. Like many prophets before and after him, Jeremiah complains to God that he was being persecuted as a bearer of bad news. And so the title of our message is The Bad News Bearer. Let's have a word of prayer. I needed some of you first service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We receive it as authoritative, meaning that it speaks to us from the very throne of God. May it speak to us today of your grace and mercy, of your wonderful love for us that would motivate us, Lord, to walk with you and as a byproduct of that, to work for you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. If there's one guy you don't want to bring bad news to, it would have to be Darth Vader. After losing the Millennium Falcon when it emerged from an asteroid field, Captain Nieder took a shuttle to apologize to Darth Vader personally, and he got the famous telekinetic strangulation treatment for his trouble. Remember when Darth Vader holds out his hand and he strangles you? It's demonic, you understand. But anyway, I saw some people worried, you know. But anyway, Darth Vader likewise killed Admiral Ozell, of course you remember that, for alerting the rebels to the Imperial presence by coming out of hyperspace too close to the planet Hoth. He didn't give him the common courtesy of killing him in person. He killed him over the comm screen, and you see him in the background gasping and choking to death while he promotes somebody else. So he didn't want to bring bad news to Darth Vader. There's an old expression, don't kill or don't shoot the messenger. It means that often folks do react with hostility towards the bearer of bad news. Now, the 6th century poster boy for bearing really, really horrible news would have to be the prophet Jeremiah. God had a message for his wayward nation, the nation of Judah. It was all doom and gloom. It was all judgment and death. Life as God's messenger was starting to get to Jeremiah. First, he wished he had never even been born. And then he lashed out at God, telling God that he was an unreliable stream, telling God that he was waters that had failed. Now, you and I may not be prophets of the Lord, but we are every bit messengers I can support the claim that Christians are messengers from the great commission Jesus gave to all his disciples. 28, 19, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or I could cite Jesus' words to his followers on the day of Pentecost. Uh, He said the Holy Spirit would come and fill them with power from on high and they would be witnesses to him throughout the whole world. Or I could cite the Apostle Paul who described Christians as living letters known and read by all men. He says that in 2 Corinthians 3. Even a quick overview of the New Testament will reveal that Christian messengers don't always fare very well when they deliver their message. While what we have to share is most definitely good news, it's a savor of death to all those who refuse to receive that message about Jesus Christ, and those people tend to want to persecute or kill the messenger. Like Jeremiah, when we find ourselves in some peril, we can vilify God. After all, we're serving him, we're loving him. Look how he allows us to be treated. 
Or we can determine to instead glorify God looking to Jesus. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your perils as a messenger can influence you to vilify God. Or number two, God's passion as the messenger can inspire you to glorify God. Verses 10 through 18, let's look at your perils as a messenger. Ever wish you'd never been born? If so, you can relate to Jeremiah because that's how he was feeling. He says in verse 10, woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Even though he was the prophet of God, Jeremiah commanded no more honor or respect than a ruthless lender or an irresponsible borrower. Today we would complain that we were IRS agents. That that's how, you know, Lord, I'm serving you and people think of me the way they think of the IRS. Now forget Jeremiah for just a moment and think instead of Jesus Christ. Son of God, second person of the Trinity, through whom all things were made and without whom was not anything made that was made. He was largely despised and rejected. He was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. A cloud of illegitimacy hung over his entire life due to the circumstances of his birth. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, you can't really expect to be treated any better than he, can you? But we forget that sometimes because we're not always treated that way, because we're not always imperiled, at least in our lives here in the West for the most part, we tend to forget that. And when something comes along, it kind of knocks us down. But just think of the Lord and what he endured on our behalf, and you'll have the right perspective. Verse 11, the Lord said, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of diversity and in the time of affliction. Now, this is the Lord's way of encouraging his prophet. It would be well with your remnant meant God would honor his covenant with Abraham and David. The Jews would not be totally destroyed. Destruction was coming. It was inevitable, but they would not be totally destroyed. And among Jeremiah's enemies, some would soon be humbled to ask him to intercede for them out of Sure, uh, pure desperation. Of course, it would still be a time of adversity and a time of affliction. Nothing was going to change that. And so in verse 12, the Lord goes on and he says, can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Babylon is the northern iron and the bronze. Nothing could stop her advance to conquer Judah. We talked last week about how in the case of the nation of Judah, she was beyond Uh, a point of no return. Individuals, of course, could be saved, but God had determined that the nation was headed for judgment. And so verse 13, your wealth and your treasures I will give as a plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories, and I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know, for a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Commentators are split on whether God was addressing Jeremiah personally or the Jews corporately. I think it's best to say that he was addressing the Jews corporately and that Jeremiah was included among them. These same things would happen to him, not because of his sin, but because he must identify with them. 
Although he had done nothing wrong, he too would lose his wealth and treasure and would cross over into a land he did not know. Remember, this is God's way of encouraging Jeremiah. Hey, everything's right on schedule. You're going to get asked to pray for your people. It's not going to matter. In fact, I'm going to plunder you along with them and you're going to cross over into a land you don't know. Now, in Jeremiah's case, uh, that's going to be Egypt. We're going to see later in this book that uh, a, a remnant of the Jews that were left behind after the Babylonian invasion escape to Egypt against God's advice through Jeremiah and they force him to go with them. God has a very strange way of encouraging discouraged believers. He told Jeremiah that things were definitely going to get much more intense. Jeremiah in verse 15 reacts. He says, Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, don't take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Jeremiah, we would say, couldn't handle the truth. He objected to being taken away anywhere, and especially by those who persecuted him. He instead said, God, why don't you just take vengeance on the persecutors? Wasn't enough for God to tell Jeremiah he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. I mean, a sub-theme here in God's talk to Jeremiah is, Jeremiah, you're right where you need to be, doing right what I've asked you to do. But Jeremiah says, yeah, let's... Set that aside. How about you judge my persecutors and leave me alone? Jeremiah exclaimed, for your sake I have suffered. Every Christian at some point in their life on this earth is going to say, God, for your sake I have suffered. It's how you say it that matters. The apostle Paul rejoiced saying it We read in Romans 8.36, Paul quoting from the Old Testament, he says, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are lambs, or excuse me, sheep for the slaughter. After being beaten by Jewish leaders and publicly humiliated, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. That's not the tone in Jeremiah's voice. He was blaming God. He said, God, I don't want to go anywhere. I want you to vindicate me. I have suffered enough for you. Verse 16, your words were found. I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I'm called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Now, this is Jeremiah looking back, thinking about his call to the ministry. God had come to Jeremiah, he said, and Lord, I accepted your call, and it was like eating to me. I mean, he gobbled it up. He totally committed to the, to the cause. He couldn't wait. You know, he was the guy that volunteered first. He was first on the sign-up sheet. That's what he's telling the Lord. Now, if you'll recall, Jeremiah shared a few doubts at his calling. He wasn't exactly this gung-ho. He remembers it very differently than it actually happened. He made no mention of the fact either that God told him he was going to suffer. So Jeremiah has a selective memory. He has a revisionist history. And and this is typical of human beings. We tend to uh, exaggerate. And so Jeremiah is building up to saying some pretty awful things to God. And he says, hey, I was number one 
I'm the guy. No one else stepped forward. No one else volunteered for this duty. How about I get a furlough or I get an honorable discharge or something like that because I was 1,000%. There's no I in team. You know, I gave 110%. You know, that kind of, that's what he's saying. By the way, if no one told you this at the time of your conversion, let me write that terrible wrong. You are going to suffer many things as a Christian. Because Jesus said, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. It's a promise. It's not a promise we claim, but it's a promise that claims us. Now brace yourself for Jeremiah's big blow up. Verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. (laughs) For you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? It refuses to be healed. Will you be to me an unreliable stream, waters that fail? My free paraphrase of this would go like this. God, I was righteous among the wicked. I walked the narrow path. I adopted your attitude of indignation against sin, though it cost me. And what did you do, God? You wounded me, or you certainly let me be wounded, and now you won't take away my pain, even though I know you could. Wow. I guess maybe points for honesty, but this is really terrible. We would say, comfortably in our seats this morning, get it together, Jeremiah. And yet, if I'm honest... Haven't you ever felt that way? Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you've never expressed it to anyone other than God, but this is a man who has like passions as we do. And tragic things happen. Terrible things happen to good people, to God's people. And there is a tendency to have this reaction. He accused God of being an unreliable stream or waters that fail. Let's put that into a New Testament context. Having been influenced by the New Testament, remembering Jesus' promise that he would always be to us a continual source of living water welling up inside of us and flowing through us, this is a scathing accusation. It's an insult of huge proportions. It's like saying, Jesus, you're a liar because you promised me that I would have living water and I think it's been dammed up. I think it's been reserved. The truth is, as I just said, the world is full of moments when we ask, why God? Why us? Why now? Behind the question is a feeling that the waters of God have somehow dried up or they're being held back. I'm gonna explore an answer to those questions in verses 19 through 21. For now, I want to dwell just a brief moment on the reality of evil and the suffering and pain in our world, what I'm calling collectively your perils. These perils that befall us, we can't help but think God could have stopped them from happening. He could have protected us. It's only one small thought from thinking he could have to saying that he should have. If we're not careful, we vilify God. We make him out to be the villain, maybe not directly, but indirectly by his supposed inaction. 
For some people, it's done openly. They let you know they're angry with God. They turn their back on him. They walk away from him. They, want, they don't want to hear about him, although they have a deep hunger to know him. For some Christians, they vilify God in their hearts while they keep their Christian game face on. Over time, what they think in their hearts erodes their faith and they drift away on a tide of bitterness and anger. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes, but they're really mad at God. I'll give you an example of this. A few months ago, several, quite a few months ago, one of our delivery uh, people, the uh, FedEx guy, nice guy. We've gotten to know him over the years. Uh, he's come in, comes in all the time, and um, um, they love us here. Because we're, we're the best stop on the FedEx route. We just are. We're lots of fun. Anyway, we get to know this guy. He's fun. So he comes in one day, and out of the clear blue, I mean, just out of nowhere while I'm signing the little electronic thing, he goes, what, what, what do you people teach here? And I said, well, you know, and I started to stumble. Cause, and then he interrupted me, and he said, he said, how would you answer this? A few years ago, my wife died of cancer. And then a few months after that, my daughter was killed in a car wreck. And I said, well, I started to talk to him about Jesus. And he says, yeah, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And then he left. And he still comes in. He's just as nice. Uh, we look for more openings to share with him. He thinks there's something weird about us because we seem to understand something that he doesn't. But he's, he's, he was angry at God because in his mind, if there is a God, he wouldn't allow things like that. And, and he's stuck right there. And what we need to do is show him not only there is a God, but he's alive in Jesus Christ and he's alive in us. That's gonna be the answer, by the way, in a minute when we get there. Theologians are all over the map trying to give the answer to the question, why God? Let me give you a hint right now. Don't try to answer that question. If you're with somebody who is going through a terrible tragedy, Christian or non-Christian, they say, why would God allow this? Don't even try to come up with an answer. Not even some of the cliche Christian answers. Just somehow represent and point that person in the direction of the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about his suffering on their behalf. Talk about his love for them. Because here's what theologians do. You get into theology, and this is good. I study theology. A lot of people here do. We love theology, but you end up in extreme camps. One extreme camp that's ex wonderfully popular today is to look at the problem of pain and suffering and all of that and to conclude God is so much in control of everything that he not just allows it, he must actually cause it. And somehow it brings him glory. And so their answer is, why did terrorists bring down the Twin Towers? And they say, God caused that to happen. You think, oh, wait a minute, nobody believes that. <laughs> One of the most popular preachers in America teaches that. And people flock to him and they love him. On the other end of the spectrum, people who struggle with that and say, hey, that can't be true, which it isn't, but they go to another extreme and they say, well, God must not really be able to control everything. Everything's just kind of crazy. Hopefully it'll all work out in the end. Well, that doesn't give me much hope, does it? And so these are deep theological issues uh, but God doesn't give us the theological answer. He gives us the personal answer. 
he gives us an answer in God's response, in his response to Jeremiah. We ask these big questions and God says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking in the wrong place. And you need to see in verses 19 through 21, God's passion as the messenger inspiring you to glorify him. In light of his discouragement, God told Jeremiah, return. Now that's a curious uh, comment because from our point of view, Jeremiah hadn't gone anywhere. In fact, he was having a direct, if doubtful, dialogue with God. God says, return. To what? To me, to God. Return to knowing that God is your living water, your inexhaustible stream. Return to knowing God is your all in all. In him, you have everything you need and could ever desire, regardless the blessings the world has to offer or the buffetings it has to dish out. If you are a messenger, God is your messenger. You and he sharing fellowship, that's as good as it gets. And it's pretty good, really. You know, Jeremiah might have thought, God, I wanted to be born when Solomon was king. I I don't like these weird kings of Judah. I I don't want to be judged for what Manasseh did. I, I, I I wanted to be born when Solomon was king. But you know, I've seen Christians get into worse trouble during times of blessing than during times of buffeting. You know, when you're in a time of suffering, suffering and buffeting and, and pain, you might be saying, why God? You might be mad at God. You might be lashing out at God, but at least it's God you're talking to. A lot of times when God just allows you to be blessed with health and wealth and prosperity and status and all of this stuff, God gets put on hold. Hey, I, God, he, I'm so cool to God. Look what he's given me. So God, I'll see you later. I've got this from here. I can't tell you how many Christians I've seen just fall by the wayside over the years, ruin their lives because they were blessed. And so, I mean, you're tempted, if you're Jeremiah, to think I would have been a great prophet to Solomon. Well, Solomon was weird. It would have been hard to be a a prophet to Solomon. And it was hard to be a prophet to Judah because the Christian life, guess what? It's not an easy life, but it is a blessed life. You want to have an attitude about life. Here's here's the answer, as close as I can get to an answer to this whole problem. It's in the reaction and response of three young Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, during the Babylonian captivity. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon builds a statue of himself and he says, hey, I'm pretty cool. I want everybody to worship me. And of all the people there in the plain of of Dur, I think it was, they will not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar tries to do everything he can to get them to bow down. And at the end, they finally say this. It's a paraphrase, but essentially this is what they say. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God will deliver us or you will kill us. But either way, we don't care. We're not bowing down to your idol. No talk of, God, why did you allow this? We're, here we are. First of all, God, you take us captive to Babylon. We didn't want to come to Babylon and eat these, you know, have to go through all this crazy stuff and be, you know, have them try to force us to eat their diet when we want to eat vegetables and all of this kind of stuff. We didn't want this or that. And God, where's your hero right now? Where's Daniel? We could really use Daniel right now. But he seems to be absent. Thanks a lot, God. They didn't complain, they didn't say any of that, they just said, huh, okay, 
We're three young Hebrew boys. We're in the nation of Babylon. We're being judged, you know, along with our nation. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruling entity. He has the power to kill us. Or God can deliver us miraculously. And one of, either one of those ways, we're gonna glorify God. So let's get it on. Throw us in. Let's see what's gonna happen. And of course, in their case, you know what happens. Nebuchadnezzar's guys that are throwing them in, they get all burnt up. They burn to death. Those three guys are walking around and they're partying. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in from a safe distance and he sees a fourth person in there. He says, it looks like the son of God. And that's it, that's it right there. That's the picture. In the furnace with the son of God, where else would you wanna be? It doesn't, so if they die, they're with the son of God. If they're in the furnace, they're with the son of God. That's their attitude, that should be our attitude. We fall from that a lot because suffering and pain and sorrow and evil, they're real. And they knock us down, they knock the wind out of us. God knows that. And what he would say to each and every one of us every time is what he said to Jeremiah, return. Return and have fellowship with me. He thought of God as a distant force rather than as his familiar friend. He wasn't looking to God for fellowship. He was looking to God for power, for vindication. Only to give him what he wanted and thought he had earned or at least deserved. God, for his part, offered immediately to bring Jeremiah back. He'd forgive him, accept him. They'd pick up right where they had left off. As a parent, if your child said something like this to you, man, this is, I know guys that think this is the moment you go out back and fight. You know, this is a throwdown kind of a thing. God says, Jeremiah, just return and um, I'll bring you back. And then he says, you shall stand before me. Was Jeremiah not standing before God? Well, not really, not in his heart. Not while he was accusing God of being unloving and allowing his trouble. Think of the incredible privilege it is for you and I to stand before the living God. Is there anything really that can compare to that? Is there any suffering that can take away the wonder of being in the presence of God? That's what those three Hebrew boys basically said. They said, God, we're in the presence of God right now. And we don't know what he's gonna do, how bad this is gonna get, but it doesn't really matter because wherever we are, we are in God's presence representing him, bringing glory to him. And then you can stop for a moment too and remember that your God, your Lord and Savior, he more than understands your suffering. He suffered for you because there was no other way to save you and because that is what love does. Love suffers long. And so Jesus, you know, you're not, you and I aren't going to go through anything that the Lord doesn't understand. Our suffering may be unique and may be different, but it wasn't the cross. And I would submit to you that the Lord's sufferings as a man on the cross were the epitome of the suffering that anybody could ever endure. Not just the physicality of it, but the mental nature of it and the supernatural nature of it. And so when I'm suffering, though my natural reaction is to not want to suffer, to not want to be in pain, I have a savior who understands and who can fellowship with me in it. Take out the precious from the vial. That's a reference to refining precious metals through fire. And it's a reminder that God can and does use the troubles you encounter to develop Christ in you. God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. 
He's predestinated to conform you into the image of Jesus. He will finish the work that he has begun in you. There are always things going on that you and I can't know about, can't fathom, but in a sense it doesn't matter if our focus is on the Lord. Think of the book of Job and the terrible sufferings of Job. Do you realize that Job had no knowledge of what was taking place in heaven? I think it would have helped him, don't you, to know that his life was the object of a, uh, a massive spiritual test where God said, Job, in his free will, will love me no matter what you do to him. But Job didn't know that. And it's a picture to me of the fact that you and I, we can't possibly know what's going on all the time and how we play a part in it and so questions of why God, you'd, you'd have to have inexhaustible knowledge to answer that question. If, so, if somebody comes to you and says, like I said earlier, why is God allowing this? You'd have to know everything God knows and everything that's ever happened in order to figure out why this is happening right now. But what I can know is that whether it's happening or not, I can bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. You shall be as my mouth, he tells Jeremiah. Man, to speak the word of God to men, to speak forth and to speak for God, there is no greater message in all the world. You think about it for even a quick second. You can tell a person that if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, their sins will be forgiven for eternity and that they will be guaranteed the resurrection of the righteous and live in heaven forever. Can you think of any other message that, that, that even comes close to that? I mean, some people have moving oratory. You hear these speeches. You know, there's some famous speeches, the Gettysburg Address, or, you know, some of the things that John Kennedy said, you know, ask not what you can do, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. I mean, wow, this is really powerful stuff. And then God comes along and he says, here's a message you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but you can live forever. And that's the message you and I are entrusted with. That's the good news. Is it not worth suffering for to bring to people who are perishing? By definition, you're bringing it to people who are perishing who are going to want to kill you because of the warfare nature of it. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. If you've encountered the living God, no matter how difficult your road home to heaven you're to influence others rather than fall back into their way of thinking. I will make you to this people, verse 20, a fortified bronze wall. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Now, this is a restatement of Jeremiah's original calling. In case he had forgotten it, the Lord reminded him that he was in a fight. It wasn't peacetime duty. He wasn't a recruiter in some cushy office. He was in a war for souls and to represent the glory of God. Jeremiah was deep behind enemy lines. This was intense hand-to-hand -hand combat. One of our problems, especially in our mostly affluent Western society, is we forget we are in a war, a spiritual war. We acknowledge there is spiritual warfare, but we tend to live as though it shouldn't affect us on a personal level until we sign up for something or volunteer. I love that Warner Brothers cartoon with the sheepdog and the, and the wolf. You know what I'm talking about? The sheepdog and the wolf, they clock in every day. 
The sheepdog clocks in as a sheepdog and the wolf clocks in as a, as a wolf. The wolf tries to get the sheep and the dog always keeps him from doing that. At the end of the day, they clock out and they go home together. Or they're friends. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we think of the devil that way. That, okay, devil, I'm gonna volunteer for a missions trip or a ministry or something, so let's clock in together. And while I'm doing this, I'm fair game. But I got my armor. I'm all, I'm all suited up with my spiritual armor. And then, oh man, I got a break coming. Uh, let me just clock out. clock. Back. And you know what? The devil doesn't clock in. And he never clocks out. He just hates you. He wants to kill you. He's a destroyer, a murderer, Jesus called him, a liar. He's 100% against you all the time, 24-7, 365. And so we need to get out of that mentality. There is no time to clock out. I'm not saying you can't ever relax or have a retreat or anything like that. But even then, you know, it's like a soldier on furlough and then you get back into the war. And it's dangerous. Furloughs are dangerous because they make you feel comfortable. And so uh, we're in a battle. We're in a war. We need to have a warfare mentality. We need to glorify God, reveal his love and his light as we battle. Our rallying cry in the midst of this siege can be, my light affliction is but for a moment and it's working for me a far and more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If there's a secret or a key to doing this, it's captured in God's encouragement, return to me. It demands this certain way of thinking. When it comes to suffering and trouble, we must know in our hearts that God is against, not behind all the evil in this world. Instead of trusting our own assessment of circumstances that are way too complex to totally fathom, we must determine to remain in the love of God, never doubting his love for us. How can I think God loves me in the midst of tragedy? All I need to do is take a look at Jesus Christ. As one author put it, and I quote, Jesus is the perfect expression of God's thought, his character, and his will. He is God's definition to us. In Christ, God defines and expresses himself as a God of outrageous love. He is for us, never against us. We are undeserving people with whom he nevertheless is in love. And so I might doubt God's love and quite honestly, if I doubt God's love, I need to look no further than the cross because there that love of God was demonstrated while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. How can he not love me even more now that I am his child? In practical everyday rubber meets the road terms, I can't explain why when James and Peter were both arrested in the book of Acts for preaching Christ, James was beheaded while Peter was miraculously delivered from prison by an angel. I can't answer that. And guess what? No one else can either. That's the world we live in. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They could just as easily have burned to death to the glory of God as many martyrs have in the history of the church. They were delivered as many martyrs have been in the history of the church. No one can answer questions like that, but I can say that the first century Christians and many Christians centuries after them glorified God in both outcomes rather than vilifying him. 
If we begin to look away from Jesus, putting emphasis on our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, it's easy to vilify God. All of us will say to God, God, for your sake I have suffered. It's how you say it that matters. Don't vilify God, though he will still receive you if you do. Rather glorify him. He loves you. He is love. Let's pray.